You're listening to Unravel, the podcast where we go behind and beyond stories featured at our monthly live show. From Shanghai, I'm your host, Clara Davis. It's Golden Week here in China, so we're bringing you something a little different. Today's bonus episode features two stories from two individuals going for the gold in very different fields. First up, you'll hear the story Maya Sebastian told at our July 2018 show. Maya is no stranger to challenging herself and has innate musical talents, but taking on the wild world of whistling was something totally new to her. This episode is going to be a little different. We're going to play Maya's story straight through, followed by another favorite story from the Unravel stage, so you won't hear an interview in the studio. We hope you enjoy these stories. I was always. I was always a very noisy kid, as in I made a lot of noises, mostly with my face, and um, so I, I do like this, this buzzing thing, like, and then um, I can make I can uh, make my ears squeak, and this popping thing. And I know, right? Uh, people throw the word genius around a lot, but uh, yeah. anyway, so um, whistling obviously was a very natural addition to my repertoire. And when I was about twelve, I went to my friend's house, and her dad was in in the back garden. Uh, it was a very very sweet, quiet man, and I heard him whistle. And I'd never heard anyone whistle like that. I mean, he sounded like one of those guys from the old movies, you know, like a bird. I thought for sure there was going to be Disney animals like coming out of the bushes, helping him with the washing, like just <laughs> angelic, you know. And when I heard him, I said, "Okay, I got to whistle like that. That's how I want to sound." So I asked him, like, "How do you do it? How can I whistle like you?" And he said, "What no twelve-year-old kid wants to hear." He said. Forty years practice, and I was, like, <laughs> I was like, "Oh, that's a lot of years." Um, don't know if I'm that committed, um, but I thought, you know what? If I try really hard, maybe I can speed things up a bit.、Um, so I practiced whistling,、uh, and I practiced in a way、um, like I practiced other instruments. I I played、uh, trombone and、uh, a little bit of piano. So I did scales and arpeggios, and I practiced songs over again that challenged me.、Um, and by the time I finished high school, I was an above-average whistler. <laughs> and you know, I never really whistled for people. I mean, whistling's not something you usually do for people. It's something you do when you're bored. You know, when you're waiting, or you're walking, or you're working, right?、Um, and, a, and a few years ago, one of my colleagues here in, in in China, he heard me whistling in the break room, and he went, "Wow, you're really good at whistling." And I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> I'm all right." So、um, rather going back to、uh, do work, 
I uh, went down the rabbit hole, that is the internet, and I did a bit of Googling about whistling. Um, and I uncovered this whole world of whistlers. There were websites and, and this incredibly active Yahoo forum and, <laughs> and, and YouTube videos of the most amazing whistlers and also YouTube videos of whistlers that were like, eh. <laughs> not, not, not so much better than me. Um, and then I kept digging a bit more and I found there were competitions. Um, and I found one called the World Whistling Convention, which is um, the most prestigious whistling competition in the world. I see a lot of people laughing, but I'm, <laughs> it's true. This is, it's big. Um, and it was in Tokyo in 2016, and it was like a month before auditions closed, so I thought, why not give it a crack? Um, so the main category is called recorded accompaniment, which is basically like karaoke. So you whistle to a backing track and you have to do one popular song and one classical song. So I'd never done classical whistling before. <laughs> it was not in my repertoire. So I had to try, you know, I had to send an audition tape of it. So I started practicing classical whistling and it was really difficult. Like, Classical music is usually a lot more technical. Um, so I found it, it very difficult, and I also found that I was improving um, really quickly just by practicing classical music. So I sent in my audition tape, and uh, about a month later, I got this email from the Japanese Whistling Federation in broken English saying that I had been um, elected to participate to, in, in the World Whistling Convention. Um, I know, right there, there, yeah, yeah. she knows, um, and obviously I told everyone I knew, like, I was going to represent Australia at the World Whistling Commission, right? What an honour, it's a dream come true, a new dream, but a dream. So I went along to the World Whistling Convention, not quite sure what to expect, and I met all of my heroes from YouTube, these great whistlers, and, and we, like, we talked about whistling, like really nerdy, talking about whistling, like, oh, what do you do with your mouth? And like, where does your tongue go when you're, you know, when you're, when you're whistling? Um, which is fun because you can't do that with anyone. And then I got on stage and I was surprised how nervous I was. Uh, it was this, like, it was 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon, this half-empty auditorium, like some old Japanese guys kind of like sleeping in the front row. But I found that I really lost my breathing because um, I'd never whistled in front of people like an audience. Um, so I was a bit sad. I butchered my classical. But I had a great time at the, at the competition. And I said, I've got to go back in two years' time, 2018. And one of the best things I saw at the competition was another category called Allied Arts, um, which is where you do something else while you whistle. It's, this is real. So I saw people salsa and whistle. Um, I saw these Japanese kids do gymnastics while they whistled. Um, puppets whistling. Um, and my personal favourite was the Indian Whistling Association came along and did this bizarre and wonderful skit 
of like the baby elephant walk. I mean, they were dressed as trees and elephants. It was anyway. So I saw this and I said, okay, I've got to go in this as well. Like this is too funny. Um, so I came back to Shanghai. I joined the roller derby team here um, with the hopes of learning how to roller skate dance. Um, turns out there's not that much dancing in roller derby. <laughs> but they taught me how to stop, which that's, that's important. So I was practicing more. I wanted to be better. I performed for different groups of people. I was practicing my roller skating. Um, and at some point I thought, am I putting too much time into this? <laughs> you know, it's, it's whistling, right? It's, um, maybe I could use this time and energy for work or, you know, learning Chinese or my body or have relationships or whatever. Um, okay. Um, but actually, I don't. I, I think no. I mean, look, whistling, whistling has always uh, been one of life's simple pleasures to me. Um, I love that you can do it anywhere. It always improves my mood. It makes me happy. And and what I found is the more effort I put into it, and the better I got, the happier it made me. And I think there's a lot of value in that. So I went went to the 2018 world was. World Whistling Convention. It was just in May. I didn't make the finals of the recorded accompaniment category, but I was much happier with my performance. Um, and I'm proud to announce I came third in Allied Arts. Um, yes. Thank you. I know. And not only that, but I can now say I am the number one roller skating whistler in the world! Thank you. All right. Settle down. Settle down. Calm your farm. Um, actually, does anyone have a little bit of water? I gotta wet my whistle.
Maya is always trying new things for the story. And though she moved back to Australia in the spring, we're excited to keep an eye on her whistling career from afar. Next up is Greg Nance, who told a story at our live show just last month. Greg is a challenge addict. He solo climbed mountains around the world, swam across the Nile River, and one time ran seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. This tale is about a climb that taught him a lesson he'll never forget. My earliest memories are chasing my dad and my big sister on evergreen forest trails outside my hometown, Bainbridge Island, off the coast of Seattle. Um, I wasn't very fast, couldn't run very far, but I loved it. I loved being out there. Before long, I was jumping in the Puget Sound for little swims after our runs and swimming a little further, a little further. Before long, I was climbing the biggest trees in our backyard so that I could see the Cascade and Olympic Mountains, their snow-capped glory on both sides of our hometown. As long as I was exploring the great outdoors, I had a big smile on my face. Things changed, though, when I was 12 years old. A goal I'd had for three full years, which is a long time when you're 12, I fell short of this big goal. I wanted so badly to make the all-star Little League baseball team, and I didn't. I was super bummed. I loved baseball. I wanted to hang out with my friends all summer, and I wanted the recognition of being an all-star. Age 12 right here, it's a big deal. Um, I fell short of that, and in that moment, I, I started craving something. I started craving like, the recognition of, of making it and of, of doing something notable. And I felt that like sting for the first time in my life. Now, I, I regrouped and I thought, okay, we're going to Mount St. Helens. My family, we love the outdoors. We're going to Mount St. Helens. I'm going to try to climb that mountain. Mount St. Helens, it's a, it's a volcano in the Cascade Range in Washington. And it, it exploded, a huge eruption in 1980, one of the biggest eruptions in recorded, recorded history. Um, it's iconic. And I thought, hey, if I can just make it to the top of that, then I'll, I'll be somebody. Even though I didn't make that baseball team, I'm going to be somebody. Ah, that was the idea. I get there, and I look up, and whoa, it's a really big volcano. Whoa. Um, and then we announce our intention to the park ranger, who very, very dismissively, wait, you are trying to climb that? And in that moment, I, I got re-energized about my purpose. Like the fact that this guy is you know, derisively telling me what I can't do, I'm going to do it. That was my mentality. Even though this is a really big mountain for these little 12-year-old legs, I'm going to see what I can do. And step by step by step by step, I willed myself to the top of the mountain. And getting to the very slope of this volcano, looking down at the crater, stunning views, amazing landscapes, breathtaking. Really special moment with my family. I did it with my, my dad, my brother, my sister. But actually, the, the sweetest part of that I, was, was actually the, the feeling of like accomplishment, this achievement that I just, I just knocked out. That was, the, that was the feeling that I remember coming back down that mountain. And my hunger, though, to prove myself was just kind of further ignited in that moment. It wasn't solved. It, it, in fact, it just it grew as we went. And in the years following this, I started taking on bigger and bigger climbs. I wanted to tackle even bigger peaks, even more technical and tougher stuff, even higher stuff. And it, uh, it reached a new level in 2012. I was finishing up at business school in the UK, and I wanted to take on the biggest thing yet. And so I settled on Mont Blanc. And I settled on the Ganella Glacier, which is on the Italian face near vertical ice wall um, of this mountain. Some of us may have heard of Mont Blanc. It's uh, the highest mountain in Western Europe, 4,810 meters, 
that's 15,781 feet for my fellow Americans. I was hungry to do this. And again, the same little siren song that got me when I was 12 was really gripping me at 23. I wanted this so bad, but this wasn't just a trek up Mount St. Helens. This was everything I'd learned in the 11 years since then that I'd have to put to work to stay alive. Mont Blanc, it, uh, not only is it the biggest in Western Europe, it's actually the deadliest mountain in the world. 100 people each year will die trying to climb Mont Blanc. And as I read the, the risk assessment, it cites avalanches. It cites you know, 120 mile an hour winds that, that come out of nowhere. There are these cornices and crevasses and falls where you don't even see what you're stepping into as you fall 1,000 meters to your death. As I read that, uh, most people are like totally sobered by like, you know what, maybe next year. Um, for me, that was alluring. It was like a, I was like a moth to this flame. Like I, I just needed that. Like the fact that this is the deadliest in the world, sweet, like sign me up, let's do this. I also knew that I had to get myself fitter than I'd ever been before. And so I started waking up with the sun, training myself mentally, physically, uh, scouting every aspect of this climb because I wanted only to climb this uh, in a free solo attempt. So no ropes, no teammate, just me on this ice face. I want to do it faster than anyone else ever had. And in order to do that, I, had, I studied a topographical map. I studied dozens of images, three-dimensional images of this mountain and what it's going to be like uh, to prepare myself for that moment. And the days, the weeks, the months slowly pass by. I'm getting closer and closer to my, you know, my battle with Mont Blanc. And in that moment, Mont Blanc madness had really kind of seized me. All I wanted was to make it to the top the fastest known time. That's what I wanted. I finally fly from London, where I was a student, over to uh, Torino, northwest Italy, and I hitch six rides to a place called Cor Maior, which is a mountain village right at the foot of the mountain. And in that moment, I remember looking up, kind of craning my neck, and I felt a shiver as I saw these vertical cliffs that protected the summit of Mont Blanc, realizing I've got to climb that uh, in two days. Um, but in that moment, I also steeled myself. This is why I'm here. This is why I've been training. I've got this. 11 years in the making. This is my climb. I'm, I'm going for it. I want it. I uh, check my gear one last time for like the 200th time. Check everything one last time. Go over the topographical map. I even have plan A, plan B, plan C, just in case, because you, you never know up high what's going to happen. And wolf down a very, very large breakfast. That's my favorite part of mountain climbing. The carb loads, they're great. And I set out. My legs are feeling juiced from all this training, and I start knocking off milestones. Uh, first, this, this really, really large trail system to actually get to the mountain. Then this huge boulder field, the biggest I'd ever seen. I'm climbing through it. Then I'm getting onto my first snowpack. Wow, exciting. There's snow now. Whoa, here's now a, a cliff that I've got to scale with my hands. Whoa, now there's some ice, and that's vertical. And I'm shimming across, slowly making my way up. My heart is beating. And I'm, I'm realizing as I climb a little higher, a little higher, a little higher, I look at my watch, I'm on pace right now. I actually, I could, I could get to the top of this and be the fastest person to ever do this. And that gets this moth of the flame going even stronger as I go. My willpower is there, I'm pulsing, but I've got thirst, I've got hunger. I take off my rucksack, unbuckle, I wolf down my last chocolate bar. This is all I need. I'm 400 meters now from Alpine Glory. It's right there. I'm going to get it. Wolf down the chocolate bar, sip greedily from my dwindling water supply, and I look out to admire this view. I'm, I've earned this. I'm going to take one little break to kind of celebrate a little bit, you know, a little touchdown dance at the five-yard line. I look back, and actually there's a blanket of white cloud as far as the eye can see. And that's not a good thing to see when you're exposed on a vertical 
rock face with a bunch of ice all around. I know in that moment, hey, I can't be where I am right now when that hits because those, the way that that's spiraling around this mountain, those are 60, 80, 100 mile an hour winds coming straight for me as I go. I start scrambling through thick, the thick snowpack, trying to take a, a shortcut to the Velo Refuge, the, my sanctuary, when the storm eventually is going to hit. I don't quite make it that far. Whipping winds hit me, ice all over me, and within moments, the temperature drops like 50 degrees from the storm. Winds howling, and I, I lose feeling my fingers and toes within moments. Can't feel my face because the wind is so strong, the cold is so fierce. And all I'm left to do is try to keep my bearings and keep warm, but I can't even see my black glove in front of my face or my black boots beneath me. The whiteout is so complete. Miraculously, after some minutes, there's a temporary hold in this. I'm still in the storm, but I at least can see up above me. There's a path, thankfully, where my refuge is. I make, make it in a scramble, just trying to hang on to rock as I go, and I crawl through what is basically a large dog kennel. It's like this big aluminum cage. It's called a refuge, and it's what keeps mountaineers safe in bad storms. I'm the only one in there. I crawl in my sleeping bag, and at this moment, I'm battling hypothermia. I'm shivering so loudly. My teeth are, I can hear my teeth over the wind. I start doing sit-ups, trying to get some blood flow going because I can feel my fingers have lost grip, my toes have lost grip. I'm afraid I'm going to lose fingers, toes, or, or my life right here. And in those moments, I'm all alone for those 12 hours. And it's the, the single most lonesome I've, I've ever felt because it feels like you're on Mars or somewhere further away because there's nothing you can do except your sit-ups in this pathetic little sleeping bag, pathetic little corner of this pathetic little refuge, being completely dominated by this mountain storm as we go. After these 12 hours, I hear you know, an eternity has passed, and I finally hear the clanking on the stairs. Another climber is coming through, and it's an Australian fellow who, when he sees me kind of pathetically huddled in the corner, crikey, as he realizes, <laughs> true story, as he realizes, I've been sleeping there in the, in the corner doing these sit-ups for the last 12 hours. This, the storm has actually lifted, and it's now descending back down the mountain. Remembering my mission, I strap back up. I've got to make it to the top. I'm 300 meters away. It's right there. I've got to do this. The record's gone, but I've got the strength to actually touch the top and then to start trudging down. And I've got a little smile on my face because you know, though I'm not going to come away with the record for this, you know, I endured. I made it through as I go. And I, I'm now coming off this mountain. I take off my goggles and a silent salute to this refuge that, that kept me alive. Getting back down to sea level, uh, my friends who had been following my training, following the climb, were blown away. Like, just like this triumphant mood. I wasn't feeling any of it. I was, uh, had frostbite in a couple of my toes that I was really concerned about. My face was literally peeling from the exposure. I was losing, like, skin. Like, it was, it was horrible. Very, very, very painful and scary. As I, I, I never dealt with that. And the worst part about it was I learned that the three people higher than me on the mountain that day had each passed away. They were whipped off the mountain in avalanches and, and from winds and exposure. And on my way off the mountain, I even saw one being pulled off with a helicopter, frozen body, just <sighs> What does this all mean? I wish I could tell you that I were wiser or more courageous or stronger now because of this. Um, I can't. What I can tell you is I think I've been cured of Mont Blanc madness. Summit fever has killed literally thousands of people on Mont Blanc, people just like me. I was totally gripped by that, and yet I made it through no skill of my own, just from fortune. I happened to be right below the refuge. I knew it was there. 
a lot of people didn't have that fortune. And in the years since, the meaning of this mountain has actually evolved for me. I've realized that no mountaineer ever climbs a mountain without the mountain's permission. There is no such thing as conquering a summit, conquering a mountain or bagging a mountain. It's a collaborative effort to reach nature's pinnacle. And all these years later, I'm still exploring evergreen forest trails. And I'm still chasing my sister and my dad, who are awesome outdoors people. But now we're joined by Hannah, my four-year-old baby niece. And she loves the forest as much as her uncle Greg. And seeing her and the pure joy and wonderment when she's exploring in the woods has reminded me to enjoy nature's surreal splendor with a smile. Thank you. We are always inspired by the adventures our storytellers take and tell us all about. For more podcasts and bonus materials, check out our website at www.unravelstorytelling.com podcast. This podcast is produced and edited by Sarah Borbor with original music and post-production by Ricardo Valdez. We're recording in the Nowness Studio in the City of Gold, Shanghai. I'm your host and the founder of Unravel, Clara Davis. Thanks for being a part of our story. Next week on Unravel, a love to last the ages. Time for us is maybe perceived differently. That's what makes this special. If we were probably the same age, we wouldn't have this other element, this untouchable, unknowable thing that, that I think it has.